podcast is intended for UK and Ireland healthcare professionals only. My name is Dr. Anne-Marie Russell. I am a clinical academic at the University of Exeter Respiratory Institute and the Royal Devon and Exeter NHS Foundation Trust, with a special interest in patient reported measures and outcomes in interstitial lung disease and also patient-centred methodologies. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome you to episode one of the ILD Academy Spotlight Podcasts, brought to you by Boehringer Ingelheim. The podcasts will feature prominent members of the UK and Ireland interstitial lung disease community, and these podcasts will shine a spotlight on the great work that's being done around the country. We hope they will break down some of the challenges facing us in delivering excellent care to our patients. Joining me on today's episode is Dr Christopher Huntley. Uh, Christopher is a specialist registrar in respiratory medicine and a clinical research fellow in occupational and interstitial lung diseases at University Hospitals Birmingham NHS Foundation Trust uh, here in the UK. Welcome, Chris. Hello there. Thank you for having me today. You're very welcome. Uh, I wonder if I could just start by asking a little bit about you uh, as a person and your role as a clinician researcher. Sure, no problem. So I've um, I've been based in the West Midlands uh, for the last seven years, um, and I've been in speci- higher specialty training in respiratory medicine since 2016. Uh, for the last two and a half years, I've been based at the University of Birmingham, uh, currently doing my PhD, and I've got special interest in interstitial and occupational lung diseases, uh, and my current PhD is looking at sarcoidosis and occupational exposures that may be linked with sarcoidosis. Um, so, so that was what was going on prior to the pandemic. And then uh, obviously COVID-19 uh, showed its ugly face back in uh, March 2020. Uh, so through a combination of redeployment um, and, and in my role as a ILD clinical fellow, I ended up becoming more involved with the, the post uh, post inpatient care of, of the COVID-19 patients in their recovery, um, which brings us up to the current day. Yes, yeah, no, absolutely. Your PhD sounds fascinating. Um, I, I think that we we'll talk a, a little bit more about uh, COVID and, and the impact that that's had. But um, I wonder if you could maybe just tell us a little bit more about your research and perhaps a little bit about your doctoral work. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so, so like I say, I'm in my third year of um, my PhD. Um, what 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 I'm looking at is the occupational exposure that may be associated with sarcoidosis, um, and, and this is through a variety of of, of different work really. So um, we've we've got a, a, a systematic review and meta analysis at, at the moment uh, in the final stages of writing. Where I'm looking at um, the current literature and what the odds ratios of various uh, occupational exposures such as silica, uh, metals or various metals. Uh, organic dust and inorganic dust and that's acknowledging really that um, uh, there there's an epigenetic link so we know that not everyone with certain HLA genotypes do develop sarcoidosis but that is a risk uh, and there's most likely an environmental component uh, to, to the onset of sarcoidosis so so what we're looking at so what my main uh, PhD is looking at is a case control study um, yes. where we're investigating this in more detail in patients yes. with a diagnosis of sarcoidosis. 
Yes, yeah, yeah. No, fascinating, really valuable work and I, I guess really needed in the sarcoidosis community as well. So we we look forward to your outputs from, from that. Um, and, and so I guess interacting with patients with sarcoidosis, seeing your patients in clinic, but also the wider um, interstitial lung disease service looking for looking after patients with a number of conditions. Could you just um, tell me a little bit more uh, about what your experience has been through um, the, the COVID-19 pandemic and how you've managed uh, the, the follow ups for patients? Uh, yeah, so it's, it's it's been a real challenge, and I think it, it's it's probably worthwhile looking at it in in two stages actually, which which loosely fit with the two way two well the first two waves of the, of the pandemic. So obviously back in March when when we started to hit that first um, first large wave of cases in hospital, um, COVID was very much an unknown. And the focus was very much, and rightly so, on on the acute care of these patients when they were, they were turning up in hospital in in a variety of diff, different clinical uh, conditions. Now, it's, it's it's quite interesting. Quite quite early on, it it became apparent that these patients, when they were being discharged, they um, that wasn't the end of their journey by any means, and that that, that even after being discharged from hospital. They, they were experiencing a range of a variety of symptoms, whether that was respiratory or, or multi-organ. Um, so, so in Birmingham, the fact that we, the trust I work in, we that is based over four sites, made follow-up of these patients um, difficult, uh, and it did vary across the site. Um, in the first wave, I think we were going a lot off anecdotally what's happened in the SARS and uh, and the more recent MERS epidemics. Um, and and I, I guess the worry was back it back in the spring of 2020 was um, there were some cases that had been reported of of long term pulmonary fibrosis secondary to the acute coronavirus infection, and given the the larger scale of the COVID nineteen pandemic, the concern was whether whether the, we were going to see a similar sort of sequelae on on a much larger scale, which would have huge impact on on healthcare services. So when the BATS guidelines came out um, in in the spring 2020, where it's initially recommending some simple um, follow up process pathways for for those patients who had been hospitalised to try and identify whether this may be an ongoing problem. So so the the centre I was working at or I work at at the time. The infectious diseases team that were based there had already got a pathway in place, fortunately, where where the, the, the sickest patients that had been in hospital had already got some some initial six week telephone contact in, in place. But it was soon becoming apparent that these patients were still breathless. They still had ongoing issues with cough, with anxiety, with with other psychological trauma for, from their inpatient stay, along with other other. Uh, organ involvement such as the kidneys and, and also palpitations were, were a significant impact and and what we were getting to from the respiratory point of view was we were getting to this three-month period where you would either have a chest x-ray which was still abnormal or you still had patients who were breathless or symptomatic and, and it, we got to a stumbling block really as what 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 happens now and what is actually still going on in the lungs so so in the first wave what what we did we ran a very much ad hoc uh, service attached to the ILD service in Birmingham, 
were those patients at three months where that they were still having difficulties with either trying to do a combined clinic with the infectious diseases team so we'd see them at the same time as their three-month follow-up or or we would we would try and find them an urgent slot in uh, in the ILD service which with three months of no outpatient work was very difficult to find as you can imagine with, with yes. the, the demands already existing on the services so so that was the first wave and and as 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 we got into autumn 2020 it was it was clear that that patients took a lot longer to recover i think there was more coming out in the literature about um longer term consequences of of covid-19 um in relation to the lung and so so around christmas time we set up a a service for that more acute the, the this more severe end of the spectrum so uh what would happen from from the winter onwards in 2020 in our centre was that we'd um, identify those patients who have been discharged with ambulatory oxygen. So we tried to avoid the use of long-term oxygen therapy unless there was a pre-existing clinical reason for it because the whole focus was to try and keep them ambulatory, the patients, and get them mobilising more and exercising more. Um, they would have some community physiotherapy and other therapy support to encourage their rehabilitation once they were discharged. We would then try and see them around the six-week mark if they're on ambulatory oxygen for a further assessment. And we, we we ran a multidisciplinary clinic. So we had a member of the ILD clinical team uh, present uh, from the physician point of view. We then also had um, a respiratory uh, CNS present who uh, predominantly was of either an oxygen or an interstitial lung disease background. Uh, we had a chest physiotherapist with an interest in uh, ITU, um, and respiratory muscle weakness and uh, we also had the physiology department and we were lucky because we, we had an inpatient we have an outpatient uh, unit in an in inpatient environment for the cystic fibrosis patients we, we utilized that whilst patients weren't present um, so that we could still do uh, physiology as normal with, with the required airflow. No, fantastic. That's an amazing multidisciplinary, that's a true multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary team. Uh, and and great not only for um for immediate management but longer term follow up as well. And I, I see, Chris, that you you published a very nice um uh, systematic review, I think, looking at the um evidence from COVID nineteen pandemic and um from that literature were demonstrated that um persistent respiratory sequelae were were very evident at, at three to four months. And is that still what you're finding in in your clinical practice? Yeah, so so, so definitely. So I think in in practice, what we're seeing is that um, these patients, when they first come to us in clinic at six weeks, that they're, they're still in a very poor physiological state from a respiratory point of view. So they still do have significant breathlessness. Um, their lung function, as you imagine, is way off where you would anticipate it would be, especially in those patients with no pre-existing respiratory comorbidities. They're often of a, of a fairly young age uh, and they've been left from a, a very independent lifestyle to, to barely being able to leave the house, requiring uh, ambulatory oxygen therapy, a, a lot of psychological trauma. So that initial consult really is looking at um, explaining what's happened to them, I think is the first step to support them in processing what's happened to them. Uh, we're not yes. really at that point necessarily trying to make a diagnosis of it's too early for a 
a post-COVID ILD or an interstitial lung syndrome um, diagnosis. And actually it's trying to help them process what's going on is to facilitate and really to improve or maximize their, their rehab potential at that point. And actually that, like you say, having that multidisciplinary approach is crucial, crucial at that point. What we see radiologically, physiologically is that, as you would imagine, every parameter is still reduced. So in particular, the, the diffusion capacity for carbon monoxide uh, the the FVC and the FVV1 will be low. The FVV1 seems to recover fairly quickly, but their FVC takes a little bit longer. But it's predominantly the gas exchange process that it that is impaired. Yes, and and so how how are you um, managing the sort of longitudinal uh, follow up? Um, uh, I guess we're still facing particular challenges, and particularly with PFTs as well. Yes, I, um. So, so we all and we try to individualize it slightly. Um, so we have yes. four or five slots every every other week, which we can utilize as we fill the clinical needs. So for the new patient, we're trying to split now between new and follow up patients, and and really, I think once they've hit six weeks, we try and then leave it till three months if if they're if they're showing rehabilitation progress if they're f- noticing themselves at around six weeks that some of the symptoms are starting to improve they've also got then some telephone contact if they need it in between so we can then see those patients sooner if we need to but really I think the three-month period is where you can start gauging the longer-term consequences of COVID-19 um, and that's probably the point where we start considering uh, performing some further CT imaging I think before three months, if you're looking at long, unless you're looking for an acute problem such as a, um, further VTE, PEs, I, I think it's too early really in that first three months to really establish whether there is, is any ongoing interstitial abnormality at that point. Yes, and and, and that, that three month contact is um, the, the kind of need for further in investigations. Is that based predominantly on clinical history, symptom experience, as well as PFTs? Yes, definitely. So we'll, um, at that point, we'll have made sure that they've had a, basically a full interstitial lung disease workup, as we would for any other interstitial lung disease patient, whether we suspect that they've got um, long-term interstitial lung disease or not. I think one of the important things at that point is to make sure we're not missing a pre-existing, undiagnosed uh, chronic respiratory disease um, that, that may have been present in the background, never diagnosed, and COVID-19 has unmasked or they've become deconditioned. And as a result, physiologically, it's become more apparent there was a problem before. Uh, and we have seen a range of uh, undiagnosed ILDs, which we've diagnosed uh, at that three-month period. So we've, we've diagnosed asbestosis. We've seen some cases of mesothelioma. We've had a couple of cases uh, connected tissue related, uh, connected tissue disease, interstitial lung disease, so, so we've seen a huge spectrum of, of pre-existing interstitial lung diseases, which, which either were diagnosed at that follow-up, but they, they had symptoms prior to their infection, or they had them pre-existing, but it had exacerbated the, the interstitial lung disease. So, so that, that would be the first step. And I think then once we've, we've got all the usual information that we would expect for an interstitial lung disease workup and a new history, including a full occupational history, would then go on to perform further seating imaging and discussion at an interstitial lung disease MDT. 
So, so you mentioned taking a full occupational history. I think that um, that's something that often um, regular, forgive me for saying so, but regular uh, clinicians often don't do. I think it, it can be quite in-depth. Do you have any sort of hints or, uh, or, or advice you could give us about taking a, an occupational history? Sure. I think I think the first thing is to actually remember to ask. <laughs> I think it, in a busy clinic, it's so easy to forget to, to ask um, uh, about work. The, the, there's two ways of doing it, depending on the time that you have. Um, so you can focus on the current, so the here and now. So if you've got a very limited time where you don't have 10, 15, minute, 20 minutes or more to go in, in depth in an occupational history, then it's probably better to start with the present and work back, say, for the last five years and just see what sorts of jobs they've been doing. So really you're looking at their job title and, and, and some basic inquiry into what, what that role actually involves. So often you'll get very generic terms, for example, a labourer, but what does actually being a labourer mean? What sorts of things are they doing? Are they are they helping move um, building materials, for example, from one site to another? Are they actually the um, the bricklayer's mate and are they actually helping cut all the bricks? Because their exposures even from those tasks will be very different. If you do have the luxury of 10 or 15 minutes extra in clinic, then we tend to do it the other way. So we get we go back to school age and we, ask, we try to get them in the mindset of working forward in time. So we ask them where they went to primary, secondary school, what age were they when they left school? And then ask them, what did you do from there? And work chronologically forward in time. There'll be certain jobs which which naturally will think uh, will be less relevant, especially to interstitial diseases, such as, for example, working in an office unless they've got a big air conditioning unit, which is very mouldy. Um, and there'll be other other more industry based uh, occupations, for example, that we may may be slightly more in, interested in and, and take further history. But I think they're probably the, the bottom line is if we don't ask, we don't find out. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. That that's really helpful, and I, I think it's particularly important at, at the moment with the presentation of symptoms and your post COVID diagnosis. It's it's really interesting that you've picked up other pathologies, uh, and obviously very good for the patients to get the correct diagnosis and, and treatment. So I guess in the last few minutes, Chris, I'm interested uh, to consider where we are now um, and the work that you've done um, with the uh, COVID clinics and and how that sort of fits into the larger global picture and where, where you think we go from here uh, in terms of, of future care so, and possibly yeah, research. So that's it. So, I mean, it's still, it's still a relative unknown. I think the f- the first thing we 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 need more more understanding of is after covid-19 we know that some patients do develop a persistent interstitial abnormality I'll, I'll broadly term it as on their follow up imaging now what we don't know at the moment is this is this a, a progressive interstitial lung disease that's developing um is this part of the sequelae and the recovery process and actually over time will this regress further or will we be left in sort of a, a status quo of, of almost like a time stamp of, of, of an insult to the lung, which was significant and there's been incomplete recovery. So I think the first step will be to try and identify whether the, this, this post-COVID interstitial lung syndrome perhaps is a, is a progressive disease or, or, or otherwise. Um, it's quite exciting in the UK now as sort of following on from post-COVID 
study that there's now off, offshoots of that in the ILD community. So there's the UK ILD um, study with, with significant branches now. So this is starting to investigate this issue in more detail. So looking at um, whether interstitial, well, first of all, what how, how do we define this interstitial lung syndrome or interstitial lung disease after COVID-19? Um, what, what are its hallmarks? Histologically still, there are very, very few studies that have even looked at this in those patients recovering. There's a lot of post-mortem studies and a lot of studies looking at acute COVID-19 and the impact on the lung. But uh, as far as our review took us up to, we we struggled to find any um, post in the recovery phase, in that rehabilitation phase, what, what the hist- histopathology findings were. And that's probably because obviously the these tests to obtain that tissue don't come without their own risks. And if someone's recovering, then is it is it the right thing to do? But I think as part of the UKRD study, there is um, there is a sub study where they'll be looking at um, bronchoscopy, bronchoalveolar lavage, uh, and possibly some biopsy studies as well. And then also there's a, another subgroup study looking at um, MRI scanning of the lung and looking whether you can combine physiological and uh, radiological investigations at the same time to really understand is this a, a an interstitial problem, a microvascular phenomenon or, or issue that's persisting so so mri studies are starting to allow us to explore these issues in more in more detail as well so i think the first thing is actually understanding the natural history of of post-covid 19 um, and and w- what the longer term outcomes are i think it would be really interesting if we could also look at what the impact of for example um acute steroid therapy has been and whether receiving acute steroid therapy and the acute infection then has a longer term, uh, has an impact on the longer term outcome. We know it helps mortality in the acute phase of the infection, but does it actually also help prevent, protect the lungs from longer term damage? Um, and that there are still also lots of reports of organising pneumonia in, in the follow up periods, and actually that's probably a separate subgroup of patients where where. Do these patients require some further therapy once an outpatient? So do they require uh, more traditional immunosuppression as we maybe would manage these patients with organising pneumonia for other causes? And then, and then the, the question of antifibrotics as well is, is always present in these discussions, especially if we're talking about potential for fibrotic lung disease in the future. So, so I think that there's, there's lots, lots more work to do. I think the first year it's taken us a while to to really find out what we're doing from the acute phase of the infection, but there does need to be a, a huge amount of focus now on the longer term outcomes of these patients, which I think we're starting to see. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that you've um, uh, answered some questions very well, but but rightly point out that there's, there's a lot of questions that we need that we don't know the answer to that will um, reveal themselves over the coming years. And um, certainly I think as an interstitial lung disease community, uh, we're going to be very busy uh, over the next uh, two or three years. Definitely. <laughs> so I would like to take this opportunity just to say thank you very much to Dr. Christopher Huntley, who has been with us today talking about the uh, COVID-19 follow-up and uh, also work relating to sarcoidosis and highlighted to us the importance of an occupational history in the context of an interstitial lung disease clinic. So thank you very much to you, Chris, for sharing uh, some time with us today. 
Thank you as well. Thank you for your time and inviting me.